But once I started to implement the methodology of Wharton Gillingham, it went through the roof. I said, I know this word is way too hard for you guys, but I want you just to try it. And out of 14 kids, 11 spelled Valentine, totally and completely correct. This is the Dyslexia Mom Life Podcast. We are excited that you're here today. We are here to provide you with inspiration, education, and lots and lots of support raising your children with dyslexia. I can't wait to share conversations with you about parenting children with dyslexia. I'm your host, Nicole Holcomb, a mom just like you raising a daughter with dyslexia. This is the Dyslexia Mom Life Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Alicia Petrie, Orton Gillingham trained tutor and educator, and we are so delighted to have her with us today. I am so excited to have you with us today, and welcome to the Dyslexia Mom Life podcast. And again, thank you so much for agreeing to be here and share all your wisdom with our audience. I am so glad to be invited. Thank you so much. Do you mind just spending a few minutes introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about how you got started working with students uh, with with dyslexia? Sure. I started by teaching kindergarten at a small private school in our hometown and um, found out that teach the teaching reading part was the part that I just absolutely and totally completely loved. And they sent us as a staff to what was actually a preschool continuing education classes. And there I found um, my professional mentor and what ended up being my professional mentor and stumbled upon the Orton Gillingham classes. She told me that since I was sitting on a, uh, an expired certification that I could come and take some of her classes and get my teaching certificate back in place because I had been home with children. And so I started taking the classes and I would come back to my kindergarten class and implement the methods without really knowing what I was doing. And it turns out I was starting on the on becoming Orton Gillingham trained. And after taking several of those continuing ed classes, actually quite a few of them, I decided to go for the, what we all called the big OG classes and to do my practicum and to become an associate member of the Academy of Orton Gillingham practitioners and educators. But, um, and then not too terribly long after, I guess it was my third year teaching kindergarten, a child came to the school in first grade and was not reading. And at that point, we didn't really know a whole lot about dyslexia. I was starting to learn about it, but I knew I could teach reading. And they asked me if I would try with her. And I did. And we quickly found out that something was going on, but she was kind of, she was my first and, and it grew from there. So that's kind of how I started. I'd love to ask you a follow-up question from that. So when you started your training that year in kindergarten and you said you started implementing things in your classroom, could you tell a difference in how your students were responding or how comfortable they were with language? Could you share a little bit of that with us? Yes. Um, they We have been using a phonics-based curriculum, and so it you know already was okay. But once I started to implement the methodology of Wharton-Gillingham, it went through the roof. And the what was the most exciting thing, I think, to watch was these little boys who really weren't that interested in reading. They'd much rather dig in the dirt and, you know, punch each other. But all of a sudden, instead of racing to see who could um, get to recess first or who could whatever first, it was let me read one more word. Did I read more words than he did? You know, it became, they began to see it and to get excited about it. And, and the whole process of learning to read just became that much easier. And it really spilled over the methodology spilled over into everything we did. And so, you know, I would apply the same principles to math that we were using in reading and they just, everything they did just went crazy. And in fact, I think the most exciting thing I ever saw from it was 
um, I had my son was in fourth grade at a public school and I was teaching at a private school and they were under SACS accreditation, reaccreditation, and they were wanting to put these little uh, valentines on the walls to impress the SACS committee. And as a room mom, I was supposed to go over there and help them make these valentines for their teachers to put on the wall as a little surprise. And so I went into this fourth grade classroom where there had never been phonics in that school and said, okay, you know, you need to write dear teacher, whatever, I'd be my valentine on these cards. And they started asking me how to spell words. And I would sound it out and teach it as if I was talking to my little kindergartners. And I would say it's val and time and val and time is magic E. And they looked at me like I was from Mars. And so I ended up just writing words on their, on the board. And I went right back to kindergarten and to a class of 10 wild boys and four little girls. I said, I know this word is way too hard for you guys, but I want you just to try it and get out a piece of paper and a pencil. And I want you to spell Val and time and time is magic. And I only gave them the same exact clues that I had given to those fourth graders. And out of 14 kids, 11 spelled Valentine totally and completely correct. And the others were only off by one letter. And that's how, you know, Horton Gillingham works. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That is Uh working. Yeah. That is amazing. So, you know, as people are listening, they may not understand when you say the OG methodology. How does that differ or does it differ from Um, phonics? Phonics, in its truest, purest sense, is the rules and generalizations that govern the English language. Orton Gillingham is a method of teaching phonics. They have created um, a multisensory. So you hear it, you see it, you write it, you feel it, you create it. That makes it multisensory. Then it's extremely explicit in that um, they don't assume that if you see something, you'll pick up on it. They actually point out what's going on in every single syllable that you would read, and then it's systematic. It builds, much like math does. It starts from the most simplest of concepts that a letter can make a sound, and then you put letters together to create syllables, and then you can mix and match syllables. You have eight types of syllables and six ways to divide, and it's it's kind. I like to kind of call it like it's phonics on steroids because it encompasses all of it. Most of the time in our traditional phonics programs, even if it is a phonics base, it's really not all of the rules. And it will be in such an order that a child walks out feeling like they've got pieces of a puzzle, but they don't know how they fit together. Orton Gillingham has a scope and sequence that goes in a very specific order so that you know what to do with your puzzle pieces and where they all fit in. If that makes sense. I think that's a great way to just, yeah, I think it's a great way to describe it, especially when you talk about math and how we build on math. So we all have kind of a, or, you know, remember school and how that works as far as how they build on each other and then just the whole um, scope and sequence piece. So, so some people may be wondering, you know, when you think about that building on top of each other and the scope and sequence, you know, is that something my child can do in a year or how does that look? Each child is different, which is another part of Orton Gillingham. It is prescriptive and meaning that all the kids are going to go down, are going to go down a path. How long that path takes is up to each individual child. One of the things that makes Orton Gillingham work for a dyslexic child is that it is so repetitive and so incremental. Orton Gillingham is built using um, these letter cards. And in the letter cards, you once I introduce a card, that never leaves my deck. And that child is going to practice that card every time they're together. And that is what creates the mastery. You know, going back to math, if you don't learn your basic addition, multiplication tables, addition, subtraction, multiplication, it makes it very hard to solve for 
for X. Because if you're stuck at three times two, you can't figure out what X is because you're stuck thinking about three times two. It's much the same for reading that if you're stuck at what does the letter J say, then you can't figure out jet because you're stuck at going with J. Did that answer that question? Right. Absolutely. Yes. No, it's perfect. Um, And so, you know, I was listening and thinking through what you were saying and, uh, you know, you were talking about that repetitiveness and I was thinking about this the other day and I'm not sure I will explain it correctly. So maybe you can help clarify and mm-hmm. I can't remember if you're the person that taught me this or not, or or not, or if it came later, because I don't recall exactly when I heard this. But with with students that are struggling to read, mm-hmm. who may be dyslexic, maybe we don't know yet, or are dyslexic, that repetitiveness. So I know either I've heard it or I read it somewhere where for a child that is dyslexic, where we might learn it after a couple of times, they have Absolutely. to do it. 40 to 50. Right. The average non-dyslexic brain is four to five times to work with it. But for a dyslexic kid, it's 40 to 50. And so what Orton Gillingham tries to do is that because it is multisensory, when they see it, they say it, they write it, they do it, they feel it. I now have given you four to five inputs and hopefully now within being able to do that four or five different ways now I really can multiply by 10 instead of by 40 because I've gone at you four to five ways in one shot I'm I'm magnifying that one single exposure by using multiple senses right and doesn't it also when you're talking about the different senses especially like kinetic and things like that and touching and feeling it actually fires off different pieces of our brain. So that way it helps. Mm-hmm. Is that yes. correct? Okay. Mm-hmm. I thought I had heard that. Yes. Uh, and it sends like the way I explain it to the kids, when one who's resistant to wanting to touch the table to use that tactile surface is that there are so many nerve endings in your finger and what you, what are you doing when you touch that tactile to, to make the J and this is what it feels like is that you're telling, you're sending a message to your brain that this is what a J feels like while you're saying it, while you're doing it. And it, it just makes it go faster for them. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect, you accomplish more perfect sense. in less time. And I think too, from a parent perspective, you know, when, um, at least for us, you know, early on when you start seeing your child struggle and you don't realize it's because they may have touched on it very briefly in class. And for them, it just wasn't enough for them to get it, but you don't know that mm-hmm. yet. Right. <laughs> right. You just don't know yeah, that yet. Exactly. So yeah. this is a great transition mm-hmm. to another kind of segue to that, which is, you know, the reality is in most of our schools, most of our public schools, and probably many of our private schools, you know, students aren't identified or evaluated for dyslexia until third grade or later for the majority of times, mm-hmm. right? And so unless, you know, obviously if a parent sees something or it's, you know, they realize right. because of, of their, their family history or what have you, but for some of us that didn't realize that, you know, I know you work with um, elementary school students. So when you're thinking about those early elementary ages, so the pre-K, kindergarten, first and second, before they start taking those exams in third grade, that really does, we know then Show what it, it looks like. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What are some things you're seeing? I mean, if I'm a parent and I've got a first grader or a kindergartner, um, you know, I know people say, oh, it's just developmental sometimes. And so are there signs? Are there things that parents should be watching for that might be signs Absolutely. Um, If a child stutters about two, that's one of our first indicators. If they stutter about two and it just kind of came out of nowhere and went out of nowhere and then may appear again at six or seven, it can be when those are both times when they're acquiring language. So you're acquiring speech at two and you're acquiring written language at, you know, five, six, and seven, it gets too much and they just can't get it out of their head. Um, A child, again, when they're, you know, two and they're trying to pick a hand, is my child going to be right-handed or left-handed? They're either late to choose a hand or our son went back and forth 
we would think he was going to be right and then he would go left and then we'd think he was going to be left and then he'd say, no, I'm going to be right. Um, that lateness is an indicator at, you know, in and of itself, they're all not that big a deal, but when you keep having one or more red flags, you just keep wondering, um, the inability to pick a hand, um, as they get more in that preschool age, when rhymes just mean nothing to them, they don't care. They don't like them. They don't think they're funny. They don't, you know, they just kind of look at you like it's blank. That's an indicator. Um, of course, family history is an indicator. If it, you know, if it's in your family, you better jump on it early. Um, another indicator would be that it's real early would be, um, right. A, a, a directional challenge. They have a hard time with their right and left. What do you mean by a that? Lot. Like just knowing which is which? Your right, which one's your right hand? Which one's your left hand? You know, the teacher says, do this with your right hand and they go to do it with their left or they look at it going, I don't, I don't know, know which, which one. one it is. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of them sometimes will struggle with the concept of opposites, you know, up, down. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because the f- first time you try to teach a child, you know, what is the opposite of just because they don't get it the first time doesn't necessarily mean it's a red flag. What I like to do when I'm working with a kindergarten class is I have a list of phonemic awareness skills. And if after I've shown it and tried it, they still can't do it, then their name goes on the list, you know, rhyming, it goes on the list. And then um, they can't automatically give me the sound of a letter. Right. You know, we've worked on it a little bit and they, I show them a J and they still just go, oh, I can't think what that is. Their name goes on the list. When we start to sound out words and they can't hear it, you know, they go B, E, D, and they have no idea what that is. They can't naturally hear that that's bad. Then their name goes on the list. And if their name keeps going on, over and over and over then you start to see that's a lot of red flags and I can't get them off my checklist and when that you're looking at um, by Christmas of kindergarten you're starting to get a picture of who is throwing up a lot of red flags if you're paying attention right and I've heard that before especially for people that really advocate for, you know, early testing. And then, you Mm -hmm. know, you hear the opposite of, well, no, it's really a lot of that's developmental. You should wait and see. But um, even for us, you know, there's milestones um, for a reason, right? you know, um, we've got everybody, there's always got to be somebody who's last in the class, which is what I've always tried to explain to parents. But I, when I taught kindergarten for years, I knew November 1st was, that's the day everybody should be reading, sounding out a word, not reading sentences, but they should be sounding out a word. And if we're after November 1st, then I need to go back and look at my list and see how many of those phonemic awareness skills were hard for you. And if they were, then we need to start in with intervention. Doesn't mean we need to go get tested, but it means we need to do some remediation. We need to work harder. We need to do it more often. Because like you said, if it is dyslexia, the lack of repetition is going to get them. So you've got to start doing a little bit more and see, can we round that corner and get this child around it or we just can't and then we've got to have another conversation right right so so what about for the older elementary the third through fifth grade what what would we see there as a parent if you know maybe maybe the other pieces um maybe teachers didn't know what to look for and so maybe you're in third grade and then you realize your child's reading on a first grade level for example so I mean obviously that would be a a sign but are there other things that parents might be looking for in those ages what yes it would be I hate school I hate to read I don't want to go I don't want to do it you know it starts to become emotional for them another thing would be that and you hear this all the time, my kid is so smart in blank, but they just can't read. 
you know, it's just the reading. Or they do so great at math until we get to the word problems. Right. And the, or, you know, they used to love science, but now they have to read the chapter. You know, it, it, you start to listen and hear. It's always with the reading. They love this till they got to the reading. And like you said, third is when it comes because we have quit learning to read and now we're reading to learn. And so what they maybe could have limped through with because so much was orally presented or, um, you know, done as a group, now they're expected to start to be independent and it really starts to show. And it may, you may see behavioral problems come out. Um, and a lot of times the behavior is not, I'm a bad kid. Um, you know, I, it's don't look at what I don't know. Look at how bad I am. Look at how funny I can be. Look at the class clown I am. Just anything to deflect from what's really going on inside right. of them. And one thing I think that hides it is as an education system and as parents, once we hit third grade, we quit getting them to read out loud. They don't do that anymore. You know, when I was a kid, we had to read out loud till we were in about the fifth or sixth grade, but we don't do that anymore. And so those kids can sometimes go undetected because nobody's listening to it and you don't realize they really aren't reading that chapter. Right. They, and that's what it, I was going to say too, there. because, you know, dyslexic students do tend to be very intelligent. So they, you know, they have a lot very. of coping mechanisms. And like you said, tons. I, I mean, especially like with our daughter, you know, she's very much an auditory learner. Like she can listen mm -hmm. and, you know, where mm -hmm. I'm very visual, I'm a very visual learner. So it's very interesting to watch the different learning styles. But I do think that that's definitely part of it because early on when you're having those those conversations with kids and then they're listening to the story and then they can raise yeah. their hand and tell you the answer. But then when they have to start Absolutely. reading it independently and responding to questions that are written down and writing may also be a concern, then it just kind of hits it all shows. at once. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So I know you shows. also, although you've worked, um, you know, a, a great deal of your career at elementary, I know you also work with older students, middle and high school students. Mm -hmm. And so I know, you know, sometimes it even, it, it, it sneaks through, so to speak. And sometimes families don't figure it out till middle or high school. And so for people that you've worked with families that are in that situation, I mean, what are they seeing at that point? Or what are you seeing when you start remediating those students? I mean, what are some signs that is it the same, same, same thing? thing? Yeah, it doesn't change. And what they'll, their comments are more, I just can't remember what I read. Well, it's because they are doing what I call Rolodex reading. And, you know, you and I are old enough to remember what a Rolodex right. is, but if somebody doesn't, it was these cards <laughs> on a ring and you thumb through them looking for, it's what we call our contact list now right. on our smartphone. But um, those older students, what they do is they're thumbing through their Rolodex, their contact list, and they're looking to see if what they're looking at matches any word on their list that they know. And so they see, you know, they can read... I went to the, and then they get to a word that they go, I don't know what that is. Let me thumb through my contact list, see if it's in my list anywhere. And they finally found pharmacy. Uh, and then they go on to the next word to pick up, oh, I don't know what that is. And then they go through their contact list again, and they find the word prescription, and they plug that in for my oh, I don't know what that word is. And then they go through again. Well, by the time they get to that period, they have no clue say, what yeah, they read. Comprehension. I don't even know what I just told you. <laughs> right. They don't know. And I was trying to think about it. <laughs> they don't know what they read. They have no idea. Right. So they're the way they phrase it because they think they're reading. Right. But they're not. Mm -hmm. They're thumbing through their contact list. Um, their comment is always, I can't remember what I read. And that's how they say it is. And then because I've noted, I've, as I've been working with them, I've started to realize once their rules are in place and they're starting to sound good, they'll still go, I don't remember that. 
Well, their brain has never been trained what it is you're supposed to be doing. Well, if I'm not going through my contact list, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? And you, the way you kind of jumpstart them for their comprehension skills is to, before a story, you say, at the end of this, you're going to need to be able to answer X, Y, and Z. And it gives their brain something to look for and to start to realize how to do it. And then once they kind of start to be able to answer the questions that you pre-asked after, then you start to say, okay, I'm not going to tell you what you're looking for anymore. Now, at the end of every page, I want you to stop, tell me what you read in your own words, and then we'll keep going. And then you keep expanding it, and they'll start to realize, oh, wait a minute, I forgot to pay attention. Because it's training your brain how to do that and once they get through that hurdle it usually starts to work for them a a younger child tends to comprehend earlier and quicker than the older ones the older ones just their brain doesn't even know what to think about right because they've been reading by contact lists right they just yeah doesn't work hey i just wanted to pop in here and tell you about a free resource that we are providing We have created a resource for you called Summer Activities, bringing the learning and the fun home to you. And if you're like us, we've been home since March. And so it's a long five months from when we left school to when we go back to school. And so we are looking at our house to have other activities to do at the same time, continue to remediate our dyslexic learner and provide her with reading and math opportunities. And so I have compiled some activities and some resources. Some are paid, some are for free. Some of them are virtual summer camps. But I think that you'll find something in there for you and your family, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So if you will just, after listening to the podcast, you know, look in the podcast information for this episode, and I will have a link there for you where you can jump over and subscribe and get this summer 2020 uh, activities and I know you're going to love it and I know you're going to enjoy it and P.S. you'll get some other freebies along the way too that I plan on sending out so enjoy your summer and now back to the episode. So when when parents realize or they get to a point where like you were saying, there's just other, other things start happening, right? As far as I don't want to go to school, I don't feel well, or the teacher is calling or whatever might be going on. And so they realize their child is, is the root of it really is reading. And so it really doesn't matter what age that might be, but what advice would you give to a parent as far as, you know, they may not be at a point where they can get an evaluation or maybe they have an evaluation or maybe they're in the middle of it, but they know that, the first way to kind of stop the gap is I've got to find a tutor. I've got to find a reading tutor. And so, I mean, what advice would you have for someone that's in that situation who let's just say they don't, at that point, they realize that their school is not, you know, there's no OG trained teachers and it's just not happening in the school, obviously. And so what should they be looking for? They, um, their first phone call needs to be to their local International Dyslexia Association chapter and see they keep lists of qualified tutors, um, check with them, check with um, the national organization if there's nothing in your local area, and then your, or your first call may be to the academy in New York. Um, they do have lists in your area of one of those three is who you're going to call. So let me say that again. The Academy of Wharton-Gillingham Practitioners and Educators in New York, you want to contact them. They have a list of highly qualified that they have certified themselves, um, tutors. Then um, another resource would be International Dyslexia Association and the chapter in your state. Those would be where I would start to look okay, great. for a tutor. And I'll put um, I'll and, put links to those in the show notes too. That way, people can go to that website yeah. and it'll give them the contact information as far as phone numbers. So I know we said early on it's very individualized and very you know prescriptive to a student. Mm-hmm. So would you say that as they're looking for a tutor, um, 
you know, what happens if they, if someone, if the neighbor says, or someone at church says, oh, I've got this great, you know, teacher in mind who has been teaching reading in kindergarten for 15 years, and she's so sweet, and you should try her first. I would not. Uh, well, you might call her and ask her if she, number one, knows what Orton-Gillingham is, and number two, has she been trained? And then some other questions would be, who did your training? Um, and you can go to, again, the Academy website and see if their training facility was, uh, was what's the word I'm looking for, approved. Because unfortunately, when Dr. Orton and Anna Gillingham created the method in the 1920s, they did not patent it. And I don't think they ever dreamed that we would be in a situation where everybody was trying to make a dollar off of the name. And so there are a lot of fly-by-night people who will tell you, oh, yes, I've been Orton Gillingham trained, and they have not. It is a craft. It is something that you work at for years upon years upon years. And, you know, sometimes I'll think of a certain student that I worked with 10 years ago, and I think, gosh, if I knew now, or if I knew then what I know now, I would have done a better job because you're constantly perfecting your craft, but it takes years to become certified. It's in a dyslexic child. It's not what most people think. And you don't want, for instance, one little boy I tutored years ago, he was at the end of first grade and when he started and he came in with his arms crossed and just like daring me to teach him to read and so dejected. And I finally asked him, what's wrong? Why are you acting like that? And he wouldn't answer. He just shrugged his shoulders and it hit me. Everybody he knew had tried to teach him to read and he still couldn't do it. Therefore, he must be. And you know what he thought of himself. And um, I'm not one to usually put a teach another teacher, uh, you know, down or throw them under the bus or anything because everybody's doing the best they can with what they've got. But I did have to say to the little boy, you know, you're really smart and I know what I'm doing. So you're going to learn to read. And the first time he read a word, he looked at me like, (laughs) did I just do what I think I did? So you, you want to be careful and not just send them to everybody or anybody because the more people that work with them and they still don't have success, they take that very personally. They don't take it that, oh, that sweet little kindergarten teacher didn't know what she was doing. They take it as, I am so dumb that my mother had to go through 10 different tutors to get me and they get frustrated. So before you commit or whatever, you need to be sure that not only are they Orton Gillingham trained, but preferably certified. And who did their training? Did they work with a fellow? Are they a member of the academy? Are they working towards membership in the academy? Make sure you ask all the right questions before you sign on, because it, when, if, and when it doesn't work, it's your child that pays the price. Yeah, I can, not that I can imagine it's a a huge self-esteem for, for kids, it is. especially with, you know, well, with any child that, that is struggling and, um, yes. you know, and, and they, they, I mean, I can remember even early on first and second grade, they know, they know, they know. Yeah. Down inside, and you know, there's parents who are always afraid, Oh, I don't want to tell them. And you think they want to know mm-hmm. that knowledge is power. Give them some power. Let them know it's not their IQ. It's, a different way of learning that and they're as, just as smart. As parents are, are, are kind of getting situated and looking in and, and talking to the right people and getting the right people on board to work or the right individual rather to work with their child, what what should they usually expect from tutoring? I mean, is it a 30 minute a week? Is it twice a week? I don't know it's very prescriptive to the child, but can you just give them some generalities of what they would expect? In an ideal world, when the tutor has plenty of time and the mom and dad, as you know, have to have a lot of money. Um, If you're not getting it at school, 
You know, if you are in a situation, if you're blessed enough to be in a situation where maybe they're getting it, getting Orton-Gillingham at school, then you can probably maybe get by with one day a week, depending on the severity of your child, the age that your child is when they start. You know, the younger they are, the less times a week they're going to need. The older they are, you've got to make up for lost time. Usually sessions are an hour at a time. If you start to, and and then another thing to consider would be if your child is having to be in speech, in vision therapy, in occupational therapy, depending on what else you're having to do, you've got to balance it out to find where you're not overwhelming them. Right. You know, if, if you can only add one day, then you can only add one day. It's better than nothing. It just will move a little slower. Um, yeah, the more times you can do it, the quicker the remediation. Right. And I think we talked about this before, even personally, because you have to look at, and it's hard early on to look at where is my, my most important need right now. And for us early Mm -hmm. on, it was speech. If she can't articulate and you cannot understand her. So we put everything we had, you know, we had Mm -hmm. the most services we could get at school and privately because we we just had to figure out what to kind of work on first while we did, you know, and sometimes you're doing both, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you're trying to figure out how do I fit in, you know, soccer or ballet or can we fit those things in or not? And so bedtime. Yes. (laughs) After getting homework done. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Talking about Mm -hmm. tutoring, I know we're, you know, in the middle of, of summer when we were recording this and what do you tell parents about summer tutoring? Is summer tutoring needed? Should they not be doing Absolutely. it? What's your advice on summer? I am a firm believer in summer tutoring. There's a couple of reasons. We talked about, you know, that for a dyslexic child, it's all about getting it to that long-term memory. And if you're constantly taking breaks, that's breaks in the grounds that you have made. So if you take a six, seven, eight-week stretch off you're going to have to go back, you know, say you left at point F in tutoring and you take eight weeks off, you're probably going to have to go back to C because you've lost ground. They've forgotten what you're talking about. If you give them a week off to go to the beach or whatever in the summer, there's not much ground lost and you can keep going. But another reason I like to do in the summer is, um, the only way to catch up is to work when nobody else is. And so if you're trying to get back up to grade level, you've got to work when nobody else is working. And which it sounds harsh and horrible, but you look at the dyslexic movers and shakers of the world, which it's so many of them, which is a topic for another day. (laughs) But um, what are they known for? It's work. It's their work ethic. That's how, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, and it will, um, I have a quote from uh, Kobe Bryant. It came out right after he he died, if I can find it, it, and it really, you go, oh my gosh, you know, because it came out after he died that he himself was dyslexic, and he talked about, oh, where is it? Because it's perfect. And you go, well, of course he was dyslexic. He He's a hard worker. He went to the top. Um, I have nothing in common with lazy people who blame others for their lack of success. Great things come from hard work, perseverance, no excuses. And that, if you find me a successful dyslexic person, and that's how they live. And they've had to do it for everything they've ever gotten everything and they just have to get used to working hard right and and summer is and part summer of is part of it yeah we're, we're, just, we're struggling with that at our house as well but but we know how important it is and is it is it general rule of thumbs what I've heard is uh twice a week try to get in 10 sessions over the summer does that sound about what you hear most people yeah, say that yeah. yes yes that's most of the time yeah. You try for that. And then for mm-hmm. going back to the tutoring and even the summer tutoring, you know, is there a preference for individual? Is there a preference for group? What What do you recommend for families? Or is it a combination or? Sometimes I have had it or all. Or does it depend on scheduling? Ways. <laughs> it, 
all, yeah. all <laughs> and above. Yes, everything. Um, you know, you, you have to take into consideration a family's financial situation, and some families don't have the luxury of a private session. You know, it's taken everything they can scrape together to do a group session. So you, you do have to take in financial, you take in their ability to focus. Um, I've had some children that started in private because they were so lost. Maybe they had um, handwriting issues that we needed to really work on. Maybe they had a speech thing going where we needed to really make sure each sound was attached to the right letter, you know, do some pre-work and then try to work them into a group sometimes. Um, Some children, when I've offered the opportunity for a group, they've said, no, I want her attention. Uh Um, There's a lot of factors to consider. You know, some children are so ashamed of, of it that to have just even another child in the room, they can't do it right. and they'll shut down. It, it's, it is so case by case. Right. Um, for some kids, that tutoring partner becomes one of their best friends because, hey, you struggle like I do. It's just, it's each family has to consider finances, time, availability, and, and when you can, th- that child's emotions. Right. That makes sense. In all of it. So again, very, being very prescriptive again, as to what's best for again, the student pers- yep. and then where yep. they are in their scope and sequence. And is there something we need to go yep. back and work on again over the summer? So, and I, I've even had some kids do kind of a combination of, you know, they do one private, one group. There, this, The oddest one I ever ran was one kid <laughs> did the same lesson with two different partners. Oh, wow. Uh huh. He would have one partner on Tuesday and a different partner on Thursday, and he did it twice. But it worked for him. It gave his mom. He got two sessions for basically the price of one. And the other kids got a partner, and he was the only one who really knew he was doing it twice. Oh wow, that's amazing! Again, just what what they need. Yeah, and that's the piece too Mm -hmm. that I think is hard, especially early on you know, when you're just starting this journey um, is figuring out what, you know, and, and even later in the journey, you're still like, am I getting this right? Am I doing this in the right order? Mm-hmm. Am I giving it enough time? Am I with the right person? Am I at the right school? Yep. I mean, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. So speaking yeah. of a lot, sometimes families may hear the word remediation. And so when they hear that, mm-hmm. does that mean the same thing as tutoring or is tutoring a part of remediation or how would you explain that to a family? Remediation would be to um, re-meaning again. You know, you're going to go do it again. Right. Um you did it with the class or you did it with your grade level the first time and it didn't work. So we're going to do it again. It's not the same thing as retaining, you know, if you retain, but you don't remediate, it didn't work. Remediation is to go back and redo the work usually by changing the methodology. Unless you're in an Orton Gillingham school to just go do it again and going to fix it. Unless you change your methodology, it it's not really remediation just to go back and do the same old thing that didn't work the first time. Right. You know, because even though Orton-Gillingham can be a very slow process, you can see changes almost immediately. You know, it's, so it's, it's very So I quick. think that part is really important for families to hear too, which is that, you know, we're not curing dyslexia, Mm-mm. but... We're teaching them to work with it. Yeah, and we're teaching them how to read and how to be successful. And like you said, for for many very successful people and lots of different types of careers, it is that they learn that they have to keep at it and they just can't give up. And keep it's it's hard, mm-hmm. you know, but, but when they learn mm-hmm. that work ethic and then they see the result of that, that's what it makes it carries over into every other aspect of their life and they'll they will grow up to be successful because they've had to learn how to handle disappointment, how to handle feeling defeated and pick themselves up and do it again. Right. And keep working. And again. 
And again. And again. <laughs> and again. <laughs> Yes. So there, there is hope out there is what I want them to hear. So, you know, how, how many, how long have you been working with families? Um, let's see. As far I as like once you were, kindergarten- yeah, once you were trained OG and you started really working in that area. About f- my first tutoring student is, I started with her when she was in first grade and I think she will be, I still stay in contact with her. I think she'll be a junior in high school. Awesome. That's amazing. Yep. So mm-hmm. in that time period, I'm sure you've talked to lots of families and lots of moms. Mm-hmm. And I know we've had lots of conversations that have been invaluable to our family. What, what do you believe is the fr- most frequently asked question that you hear over and over again that you would want to share with, with our audience and, that that might help? I think the thing, you know, from a parent standpoint is I don't, I can't think of a student I've tutored yet that at some point the parent didn't say, well, I should have. And the guilt of the parent. Why didn't I see this? Why didn't um, you trusted the school to do their job? And it's not the parent's fault. You know, there's not a parent alive that loves their child that wouldn't want the best for them. You know, even some of the, what we would consider the, oh, they're a terrible parent. They want what's good for their kid. Right. You know, you don't. And I think we all do it to ourselves. Carry, <laughs> with every. We do. <laughs> I wish yes. I had realized. And, yeah. yeah. I hear that over and over of the, the guilt of, um, and even a family that said, we spanked him for that. I, I didn't know. Right. And just the guilt. It's not your fault. It's not the school's fault. They weren't trained. They can't tell you something they weren't trained how to check for. Um, and if I just feel like, especially a parent that's working with an OG tutor, they want what's best for their child that's what they're doing now and if somebody had told them two years ago to do it they would have done it It, it's just you can't beat yourself up you're where you are today put the past behind you and focus on the future because your child has a very bright future right they've got if if you're talking to an og tutor you've got a great parent and they're going to get that kid what they need and i also want them to hear too that you know the you know, I, I went back and forth whether or not to to start a podcast or how I could best reach an audience of moms um, and did a lot of blogging and then finally realized that I enjoy relationships and I enjoy working with people. Mm-hmm. And so I thought this would be a better way to communicate. So I want them to hear that, you know, if they're taking the time to listen today and listen to our conversation then mm-hmm. they're in the right place and they're mm-hmm. a great parent because they're, they're doing everything yep. they can do. Yep. Um, everything. And you know, it's just, we just have to take one day at a time. We really do. One day and, at a time. Yeah. yeah. My, my mentor in the faith of dyslexia, she told me, and it's what I have to remind myself of as the tutor, you know, cause you want it for them yesterday because you, you want it for the mom, you want it for their dad for the kid just you want it to happen and she said you go as fast as you can but as slow as you must and you just have to remind yourself it's a marathon it's not going to happen overnight and sometimes we've just got to sit back and stop yeah you'll see a kid when you're working with them that they're frustrated and they're upset and you know at that point they can't verbalize I need a minute and you just have to say stop now, let's talk about that wiggly tooth you had, or let's talk about your dog for a little while <laughs> and let them just let it go and start again and start fresh. Well, you know, every day is a new I day. I think you must have read my mind because my last question was going to be, you know, what's what's the best advice you've received, um, you know, it, going through this as a parent or going through this as an educator. And you may have just shared that advice with us just now, but if you could, if that is, that's fine. Or if you think of anything else you would want to share as it relates to 
you know, advice that really was an inspiration to, to keep working in this area or even with your own children as you thought through, you know, what's best for them um, when they were going through, you know, lots of different things as well. So you may have just given us that best advice because it sounded great, yeah, let it, me just say. It, it, it's the one I remind myself of all the right. time. Uh, you know, you just you just keep going. Um, and I think it's great it, advice too for moms because, you know, we just... And that's why I think I love that you talked about, you know, adults who are so successful and many times they may be dyslexic or, or you know, when you look mm-hmm. at the percentages of people and that is because that they stuck with it, right? They mm-hmm. it didn't come yep. overnight and it was a marathon and they took step by step by step. By step. Um, and it's, it's a long journey sometimes, but uh-huh. It's, it is. it's but worth at it the, the end, end. exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. But at the end, yeah. we're not there yet at our family, but I know there's but great she, things for her. She's come so far, you know, and, and that may be the other best thing. Every so often you have to stop and remind a kid where they were or remind the parent where they were when you got them, because the kid is stuck in this. I can't do this right now. And you say, you know, I have your handwriting from before we started, or I have your words per minute, or I know where you, what you couldn't do. Do you realize you don't do that anymore? And they, you see them go, okay, pull themselves up by their little bootstraps and say, all right, I can do it again because you're right. I was that bad, or I was that far behind, or I can see progress. Yes, they and sometimes you just have to to see when it's happening. But like you said, when you're in the middle of it, and for most dyslexic kids, the progress is so slow that they forget how far they've come. So just always kind of look back and see we have moved forward. It is coming together. So well, thank you so much. We're going to have to do this again. I think we've already kind of teased a couple other topics that we could probably talk <laughs> about. And I so enjoy just spending time with you. And so please know that it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on well, my podcast. You. And I'm I've super excited it. about it. And um, but I do, I just appreciate it so much. And I appreciate you taking time to to be with us today. Well, I was so excited and honored that you would ask. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.